wonderful passage today, Matthew chapter 12, uh, starting in verse, 10, verse 15. Let's uh, all stand up together for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 12, verse 15, it says this. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He did not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, God, for uh, this passage and the truth that it communicates. And God, I just pray as we just take a few moments today and dig into your word, God, that we would do so humbly. God, that we um, would not try to make it say what we want to say, but rather we would adapt and mold ourselves to it and allow you to be the potter. God, I pray that our studying for the next few minutes is um, pleasing in your sight and that you are glorified through it. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, y'all can have a seat. Well, has anyone in here ever experienced something unexpected? No one. Okay, cool. <laughs> like, has there ever been a time that you thought something was going to happen, and then when you actually got to that place or that event or, or you got that thing, it ended up being something completely different than what you thought it was going to be? Well, for me, that time happened in uh, 2016. So in 2016, I was the uh, student pastor here. I'm looking, it's 2016, right? Okay. In 2016, uh, I was a student pastor here at First Baptist Azel, and we were um, starting to finish up a lot of our summer events. And so, you know, like the students, like they get together and they go youth camp and then they do a bunch of other events to hang out. We help out VBS and then we go to uh, a mission trip in St. Louis uh, each year been doing it for six years. So if I can be honest with you, in 2016, we were getting ready to go to this uh, mission trip in St. Louis, and I didn't want to go. Like, I, if I can be honest with you, I was not looking forward to it. And there's a couple of reasons I was not looking forward to this. One, have you ever been around teen teenagers? Yeah. Lord bless our student workers up there and Michael, who's now the student pastor, uh, because teenagers are hard. And uh, I was not looking forward to um, squishing into a van to drive 13 hours over state lines and have to wrangle students all week and then get back in that van and come 13 hours back. So one, was not looking forward to that. The second reason I wasn't looking forward to it, um, I was just tired. We'd already done a bunch of stuff, and this was one of the last events of the summer, and I was just ready to be done, and uh, the, the thought of doing that just didn't appease me. And the third reason, and safe space here, if I can just speak honestly with you, I was just going through some personal stuff. 
at that time. And I just was not in the best place. And I was having a hard time just keeping it together myself. And the thought of going on this trip with 20 students to do ministry, the thought of while I'm trying to keep it together, ministering to them and helping them keep it together, which in turn they ministered to them and helped them keep it together. Like it's just, it was a lot. And I just was not looking forward to it. And so we get on that trip and I had a, a two-day trip. We stayed the night halfway, uh, but 13 hours total. Uh, I had 13 hours to think about how miserable I was gonna be this whole week. Like, what could go wrong? What if one of the students died? <laughs> Which, by the way, if you've been in St. Louis, there's a possibility. By the way, sign your students up for St. Louis. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So I get on this long trip up there and I'm just like kind of dreading it, if I'm being honest. And, and I get out and again, this is our first time here. And one of the first things you do is you go into registration with the mission organization that you partner with. And one of the first things they do is they say, okay, hey, we're gonna take a tour of the facility. And uh, one of our interns here is gonna be your tour guide through it. So we get on that. And guess who the tour guide is? It's Miss Randy Prock, who is now my wife. Which, by the way, we always joke because she was like happy-go-lucky and I was like on the verge of a panic attack. So I was, <laughs> so we had an interesting first encounter. But here's why I say all that is because um, what I expected that trip to be was to be anxiety-driven, stress-driven, um, long week where I was just trying to make it through. And what ended up coming out of that trip was um, we got to... Uh, see our students grow because one of the big points of that uh, mission trip that, and the reason that we keep going to it is because uh, they put a heavy emphasis on discipling and training up the students to do the ministry. So we're not doing the ministry, the students are doing the ministry and we're helping the students. So I got to see the students grow and minister that week. We got to see little kids come to the VBS in a low income area and hear the gospel and be loved on for a few hours each day. Um, we got to start a uh, partnership with the organization that we've been doing for six years and we're still doing, and I got to meet my wife. I think what came out of that is a little bit better than what I thought going into it. And that happens. Sometimes we get an expectation of what's going to happen, and then in reality, that is very, very different. And that's what happens, uh, or that's what happened about... 2,000 some odd years ago. When Jesus came into this world, Israel, the Jews, had a very distinct picture of what they thought the Messiah was going to be and what they expected the Messiah to be. And then Jesus came in and he was completely different. Now you may ask yourself, how did, like, like didn't they have prophecies? Like this passage today is a prophecy that was given hundreds of years prior. Like they knew who Jesus was going to be. So how did they get it so wrong? And the, the answer is they just missed it. They've been studying these scriptures for hundreds and hundreds of years. And instead of approaching the scriptures humbly, looking to allow the scriptures to mold our thoughts about who God is and what he's doing, they approach the scriptures of how do I make these scriptures or how do I mold these scriptures to my thoughts about how Israel should go, about how the world should go. So eventually they built up this um, make-believe Messiah, Jesus. And then when Jesus actually came in, um, he was so different that they not only didn't believe him, but they killed him for it. 
right before this passage, um, Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. And it says that the Pharisees, which is like the high Jews, um, the Pharisees got together and they plotted how to destroy Jesus because he's not the Messiah that they thought he was going to be. And so what I want to warn you of today is that the Bible tells us that the same way that they were hardened and blind and, and they couldn't see what was going on in front of them, the Bible says the very same thing can happen to us. That we can gather here week after week, Sunday after Sunday, Bible study after Bible study. You can listen to KLTY. You can open up your Bible for every, every day for your devotional, pray every day, and you can miss it. You can have the very Jesus sitting in front of you, and you miss it because you read your own thoughts onto it, and you end up creating this faux Jesus made in your image rather than the one true God who is the full representation of God the Father in the flesh. So I want us to take the warnings of the Jews and the mistakes of the Jews and learn from them. And so we're going to dig into today's passage, which is a prophecy of Jesus from Isaiah. And we're going to uh, dig into it and see what exactly the Bible foretold Jesus to be. And in doing so, uh, we're, we're going to unpack this, and I'm going to present to you four things that they were expecting Jesus to be and four things that they actually got from Jesus, from Scripture. So if we can wrap our mind around these characteristics, around the heart and around the mission of Jesus, then not only can we worship uh, and celebrate the true Jesus this Christmas season, but we can better model and we can better imitate him as we're seeking to be the church to a broken world. Okay, so we're going to dig into this passage. I want to present to you four things that they expected Jesus to be and four things that they got. Cool? All right, Matthew chapter 12. Uh, we're going to start back in verse 17. Let's get into it. Uh, so it says, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, this is where the prophecy begins. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So the very first script, or sorry, the very first descriptor that we see in this passage is that Jesus was a servant. Like that's how they, they describe Jesus is as a servant. And this is actually one of the most important characteristics to wrap our mind around because a lot of, uh, of the other characteristics of Jesus kind of start to, to bloom out of this idea of him being a servant. But this isn't what they expected Jesus to be. What they wanted, what they expected was a king. They wanted a king to rule and lead Israel in the world but instead they got a servant. And that leads us to our first point today. Our first point is they expected royalty. They got a servant. So Jesus came in and he flipped all their misconceptions around, right? Um, like he wasn't born in a castle, he was born in a manger. He wasn't, um, uh, he didn't live in a mansion. He had no place to lay his head. Like he wasn't from some upper class suburban town. Uh, he was from Nazareth, Nazareth. And they said that um, Nazareth was a like poor nothing of a city to the point where they said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like Oklahoma. It's like, can anything good come out of Oklahoma? If you're from Oklahoma, I'm sorry. It's a trash state. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> 
I got to take my shots at Oklahoma. By the way, okay, my wife, um, so she's from Missouri. We met in uh, St. Louis. Um, we always had this long-running joke that uh, Texas, by the way, uh, raise your hand if you're from Texas. Like we have a we have a pride of Texas, right? Like I didn't realize that we're one of the only states that has a pledge, right? Like that was like mind boggling to Randy when she moved over here. She's like, why are y'all saying a pledge to the Texas flag? I'm like, cause it's Texas. Um, <laughs> anyway, so there's a long running joke that, so I'm from Texas, she's from Missouri, that Texas is the promised land. Missouri is Egypt where she was in slavery and Oklahoma was the wilderness that we had to trek through to get her back. What are we talking about? Um, Jesus flipped their expectations around. They expected the king, they gave him, or he gave them a servant. And we see Jesus' servanthood played out in, in two main ways. The first way we see Jesus' servanthood played out is um, he was a servant to God the Father. Like a lot of times in the Gospels, we see Jesus say something like, um, I speak only as the Father speaks. So Jesus came in and his first priority was to submit himself to God the Father. And it says that in verse 18 of today's passage. It says, behold, my servant, so this is God talking, my servant, Jesus, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Jesus' mission, first and foremost, was to serve God the Father and to execute his will and his plan. Which, by the way, when it says uh, he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, that was the plan of God was to proclaim justice to the Gentiles. We're gonna pin that for just a second, so, so keep it in your mind. We're gonna come back to that in just a minute, but, but I wanna move forward a little bit on the servant thing. So the first way that he displays his servanthood is by submitting and being a servant to God the Father. The second way that he uh, displays his servanthood is that he was a servant to the people around him. And that's kind of mind boggling, right? Like I can make sense of God the Son serving God the Father. I can't make sense of God the Son serving us. Why? It's because that was the character of Jesus, to serve the people around him. And he said as much in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. He says this, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' servanthood is integral to who he is, and he displays this um, uh, perfectly in the Last Supper. So if you know the Last Supper, um, uh, there's a m moment uh, that night where Jesus gets up from the table and he starts to wash the disciples' feet and serving them, which, by the way, was a servant job. Like, it was not a high-class job, right? So Jesus starts to wash their feet, and if you remember, he comes to Peter, and Peter says, no you're not gonna wash my feet. And y'all remember what Jesus said? He said, if I don't wash your feet, then you can have no part with me. It's crucial and integral to the character of Jesus that we allow him to be a servant in our lives, which is very humbling, right? So like if I was to make a, a um, not great comparison to that, like let's pretend that you were throwing a dinner party at your house and you invited Jesus, like in the flesh, Jesus, to come to your dinner party. 
and you cater Texas Day Brazil, like you got the good stuff out, right? Um, and you have the dinner, you're having a good time, and then uh, dinner starts to wrap up, and Jesus stands up from the table, walks over to your sink, and starts doing your dishes. Then he walks to your laundry room and starts doing your laundry. And understandably so, you walk over to Jesus and you say, wait, no, no, th th this is not your job. Stop, stop washing my dishes. These are my dishes. You go sit back at the table, enjoy yourself, have a good time. We're here, we're here to make this night great for you. And he stops you and he says, no, you're wrong. This is my job. I came not to be served, but to serve. And there's a, there's a humbling factor to that, that we allow the God of the universe to come be a servant to us. He didn't come as royalty, he came as a servant. Now, you may say, but isn't Jesus royalty? Isn't he a king? And, and yes, absolutely. Jesus is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is over all and above all that was, that is, and is to come. But he didn't harness that power to then lord that power over the people. And that's what they wanted. They wanted Jesus to take hold of his royalty and his kingship and then uh, lead Israel and trample over their enemies. And Jesus is like, I'm not that kind of king. I'm a servant king. I don't lead from a high-rise tower. I lead in the trenches with you. They expected royalty. They got a servant. Let's keep going. Verse 19 picks back up says, he did not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. So there's three descriptors in this one. There's uh, the quarreling and the crying aloud and hearing the voice in the streets. The first two make sense, right? Quarreling is like fighting and crying aloud is, you know, crying out. Um, the, the third one, the hearing his voice in the streets, that, that might take a little bit of, of explanation and it kind of doesn't correlate as much here. So if I was to want to get out a message to the public, like if, like I have like the info, like I'm leading something, what am I going to do? I'm going to go get on social media, you know, I'm going to go uh, contact news agencies, have them uh, have me on their show. I'm going to uh, put something in the paper, if you do paper. That's how we communicate to the mass, to the public. Before all that, how did you do it? You had to go to the streets. You had to go to the town square and, and where all the people gathered together, that's where you would go. And that's, this is actually where we get our uh, cliche, like get off your soapbox. What they would do, they would grab a soapbox, set it down and step up on the soapbox as a makeshift platform and proclaim their cause to the world, right? And I think that's what's getting at here. I, I think they're saying that, that Jesus isn't going to be a guy that takes his message to the streets. Why? Because typically if you're going to take your message to the streets in that way, and, and you're going to have quarreling and crying aloud, it's typically going to be revolutionary and political. Right? And, and we see this as the case today. When anything political or revolutionary happens, what happens? They go to the streets. The, the protest happens in the streets and there's fighting and there's yelling and there's people trying to promote their cause. And it says that Jesus didn't do this. This is not what Jesus came here to do. He didn't quarrel. He didn't cry aloud. He didn't try to stir up crowds in the streets for his cause. He did something completely different. And that's what they wanted Jesus to do. They wanted him to be a political figure, a, a political leader to lead them um, out of Rome and into their own nation. 
And that's where we get to our second point. They expected political change, but they got heart change. They expected political change, they got heart change. See, politics isn't a bad thing. I love politics. But politics, by definition, isn't personal. Politics is about policy. And policy isn't about how um, like, like we work on a personal level. Policy is how we work together as a whole. Policy is about how a city or a state or a nation works together on a superficial level. Jesus actually wasn't super interested in that. Jesus was about working together on a personal, intimate level, right? Like, like Jesus, yes, he did speak to crowds of a thousand, but that's actually a really small part of his ministry. The majority of Jesus' ministry was working one-on-one with people and with a small group of disciples. Jesus wasn't interested in political change. He was interested in heart change. And, and we've mentioned before that there were great atrocities in the Roman government. Like, worse, like the worst things that we see now was like the lightest things they had then. But Jesus didn't seem to be concerned with it. And I think Jesus wasn't concerned with it because he knew that even if he came in, uh, liberated them out of Rome, and built the most perfect nation and government with the best policy in the world, it wouldn't fix the problem because that's not the ultimate problem. The ultimate problem is the heart. And we see this play out today. Um, In 2008, there was a journalist named Matthew Paris, and he wrote an article called, As an Atheist, I Truly Believe Africa Needs God. So Matthew was a journalist and he went into Africa to report on what was going on there and how the, the uh, nation building, if you will, was kind of going on and, and you know, bringing this third world country out of poverty. And he says, quote, missionaries, not aid money, are the solution to Africa's biggest problem. Mind you, this is an atheist, guy, self-proclaimed atheist doesn't even believe in God. And he says that missionaries, not aid money, are the solution to Africa's biggest problem. He says, while increasing literacy and uh, healing the sick and building schools and building hospitals, all of those are good things, but those things haven't had as much of an effect on the Africans as Christianity coming in and giving them faith. And he says that this... this um, Truth has been so profound that even as an atheist, he can't deny it. The reality is, is you can't shove enough money, you can't change enough legislation, you can't put enough people in power to change hearts. Only Jesus can do that. And again, politics isn't a bad thing. Legislation change isn't a bad thing. Man, come talk to me. I love to talk about politics. Uh, I talk about it with my friends all the time. But don't miss the point, because while those are good things, they just can't change hearts. Only Jesus can change hearts, and that's why Jesus was much more concerned with heart change, not political change. And by the way, that's always what God has been concerned with. Ezekiel uh, chapter 36, verse 26 says this. By the way, Ezekiel is an Old Testament book, so this is before Jesus even entered the scene. It says this, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. God has always been about heart change. And unfortunately, we take that, we take the name of God and we remove the heart change from it and push in legislation change. Like one of the things, again, I love politics, but one of the things that drives me up a wall 
is when I see politicians usurp the name of Jesus and slap it to their agenda. And I've seen both parties do this, and it just, just makes my blood boil. Jesus isn't our political tool to get uh, what we want done, and that's what the Jews wanted. They wanted him to be a political leader, but he didn't. He didn't quarrel, he didn't cry aloud, he didn't uh, cause commotions in the streets. He worked on heart change. So they expected a political change, they got a heart change. Let's keep going. Verse 20, it says this, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. So let's break this one down a little bit. So bruised reed, um, so a reed, if you don't know, is basically like a tall plant that has like a stem on it. And uh, when it's bruised, like have y'all seen those plants that are really tall and they kind of almost get a little break in them and like any, any like wind or knocking over just psh, cuts in half. That's what I was talking about there, bruised reed. And then it says a smoldering wick. So like, you know, candles, like any candle ladies out there, right? You get a candle and then it gets to the end of that candle and when it's on its last leg, it starts to like kind of flicker and go in and out and just like the slightest breath of wind would come in and put out that candle. Uh, that's what's getting out here. So it says a bruised reed, he will not break and a smoldering wick, he will not quench him. So what does this tell us about Jesus? It tells us that, that Jesus has the ability to work with brokenness and yet not break it. He has the ability to be gentle with people, be gentle with things, and get his point across. He's not rough. He's not trying to break things. But again, as always, they wanted something different. And that brings us to our third point. Our third point is that they expected a fighter, and they got gentleness. They expected a fighter, and they got gentleness. They didn't want gentleness from their Messiah. Again, these guys have been under captivity by Rome. They've been uh, changing or been uh, trading cards with all of the different nations for the past 400 years. And they didn't want gentleness because they hadn't been gentle. They haven't been, people haven't been gentle to them. They wanted the Messiah to come in and wreck shop on all their enemies. They wanted the Messiah to come in and lead a revolution and bring them back to power like the old days where they're able to go and conquer cities. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus said he didn't come in to break people. He came in to save people. John 3, 17 says this, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We see this played out over and over again in the Gospels where Jesus encounters um, the lowly and the outcast and the rejected, like lepers and uh, prostitutes and beggars and tax collectors. He's, um, he's interacting with these smoldering wicks and these bruised reeds, yet Jesus comes in and he's not brash, and he's not harsh, and he's not letting them know every little thing that they've done wrong in their whole life. He's gentle. And he's kind, and he's compassionate, and he's full of grace. Jesus is not a person that breaks his enemies. He's the person that shows grace and forgiveness to his enemies. To the point that he says that you should love your enemy, that, that whenever, um, uh, that whenever uh, you get slapped by your enemy, turn the other cheek. And whenever they ask you to go one mile, you go the extra mile, to the point where Jesus was on the cross staring at the soldiers who were crucifying him. And what did he say? 
He said, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus is gentle and kind and full of grace and full of compassion, and that's not what they wanted. Now, I don't want us to be mistaken here because Jesus' gentleness and meekness shouldn't be misconstrued for weakness. Jesus' gentleness isn't a lack of strength. In fact, his gentleness and his meekness is his strength under control. So Lottie is about 22 months old now, my little daughter. And um, have y'all noticed that babies are weirdly strong? Like, like, like I'm a full-grown adult. I shouldn't be struggling to contain my daughter, right? Like I should be able to overpower her pretty well, but, but man, I'm like, she is way stronger than she should be at the age of 22. And I was trying to like figure out like, like why is this the case? And then what I realized, it's not that she's like abnormally strong, it's that she just doesn't know how to control her strength. It's like babies and toddlers, it's like zero or a hundred. Like there is no in between. And that's demonstrated like when she's running around and like, have you ever seen like a toddler like trip and fall? Like it's not a gentle trip and fall. It's like they're down on the ground because they're like, they have no sense of control over their movement, and they have to learn that. And, and this played out really well uh, with our cat. So we have a cat outside and man, she loves that cat. She wants to go out there and pet the cat. And it's funny because when she first started interacting with the cat, she was like this, she was like, like that poor cat, like just getting abused. And she would like grab it, like grab its tail and like yank it. Poor cat, he probably deserves it. But um, so she's working with this cat and manhandling this cat. And what me and Randy had to do, we had to come in and we had to say, no, gentle, gentle, good cat, gentle. <laughs> and she slowly started to get to the point where she was like, would be gentle with the cat. Now, here, here's the thing. In us doing that, we didn't remove her strength. She's just as bit strong as she was before. We taught her to control her strength. We taught her to harness her strength and be gentle. And that's what Jesus is. Jesus has the power of God, yet he has an amazing ability to control that in the midst of his enemies and show kindness. But there's something that I want to point out in this passage. Uh, pull back up uh, verse 20. So it says, A bruised reed uh, he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. So there's like a big clause in there of like, he is gentle, he doesn't break people until. So what this tells us is that there is a point where Jesus' gentleness will run out. There is a point, the Bible says that God is a long-suffering, patient God. And he is just waiting on you stiff-necked people to get it together. And it tells us that there's a point where his long-suffering patience will come to an end. And while Jesus' first coming was meek and mild in a manger, his second coming is going to be on a white horse with a sword waging war. And so don't mistake Jesus' gentleness for weakness because it's full of strength. And there's going to be a day that he unleashes that strength. And the only reason that he hasn't yet is because of his gentleness, his kindness, his compassion, and his long-suffering patience. So let that just be an encouragement to you. Like, don't play games with this. Because while God is patient with you now, he won't always be.
So Jesus is full gentleness, full compassion. He won't break the bruised reed. He won't quench the smoldering wick. They expected a fighter. They got gentleness. Let's keep moving. All right, so verse uh, 21, and we're going to tie in also uh, the verse beforehand. Uh, so uh, verse 18, that I told you to pen. Uh, in verse 21, they say this, uh, And he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. And so if you don't know, if, if you're not too clued in on um, uh, Bible terminology, uh, Gentiles is basically anyone that's not the Jews. So there's two large groups. There's the Jews and the Gentiles. And I'm not sure if I can properly communicate the hostility between these two groups. These groups did not like each other. The Jews thought the Gentiles were less than, unworthy of God, which by the way is mind-boggling because when God started the nation of Israel, it was in Genesis 12 with Abraham. He told Abraham, I'm going to raise a mighty nation out of you, more numerous than the stars, and we're going to bless you. And then he ends it. This is the very last thing he says. He says, and I'm going to bless you, and through you, the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so the concept was, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to reveal myself to you. Here's what you now do. You reveal me and bless the world. They didn't do that. <laughs> they, they didn't. They said, oh my gosh, we're so humble that God would choose us. Everyone, come look. Come look at the grace of God. They didn't do that. They said, oh my gosh, God revealed himself to us. We must be amazing. <laughs> we must be so much better than everyone. <laughs> And so they did the complete opposite. They, they, they persecuted the Gentiles, not shared God with the Gentiles. And so Jesus comes in and he says that he's going to proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And in the Gentiles, they will hope. And, and I can just imagine the Jews are like, like, let me get this straight. Not only are you not going to liberate us out of Rome? Not only are you not going to destroy our enemies who have been persecuting us, but you're going to save them? What? And Jesus is like, yes, that's exactly what I'm going to do because that's been the plan all along and I'm here to execute that plan. And so that leads us to our fourth and final point. They expected a country club, and they got the gospel for all. See, they wanted to keep God for themselves, and they wanted to have all their friends be part of that, and it's this club, and you have to, like, purchase membership to get in this club, and we'll let you know if you're in or not. But Jesus comes in, and he's like, no, no, that, that's not how this is going to work. This isn't a country club. This is a hospital. Like, we're not here for our friends. We're here for the broken and we get that so, so out of whack. Like, like we love our friends and we love our cliques and, and friendship isn't bad, but it's bad when you say, I've got my friends, everyone else, good luck. That's when it gets bad. That's when you turn Christianity into a country club and miss the entire point of what it is. And by the way, this is why churches die. They die because they start treating church like a country club. They die because they start thinking, I've got my friends here. If someone new comes in, that's cool, but, but I've got my friends. And hopefully you can work your way in, but if you can't, that's fine. 
Once churches start to lose the mission of God, which is the gospel for all, even the people that you don't like, that's when they cease to be a church and they die. And I pray that here at First Baptist Azel, that doesn't happen to us. Because if that does, we might as well turn off the lights, close the doors, and go home. Your time has been uh, spent better doing something else. You might as well go watch TV, because what we're doing here is no longer church. What we're doing here is no longer Christianity. And if I can be an encouragement to you, I don't think that's what we are here. Um, last week, uh, we had our First Steps lunch, which, which is a lunch for people that are new here. And uh, a first happened um, last week. Uh, the people that were new here and have been visiting here just started getting up and, and sharing their testimonies about the church and their interaction with the church. And it was so encouraging to hear that these people felt so loved and cared for when they walked through the door. They didn't feel isolated. So good for you, church, that we're carrying out the mission of God here. I pray that we continue to do that. So let's not miss the mistakes that the Jews made. Let's not miss who Jesus is. They expected him to be royalty. He came as a servant. They expected political change. He gave heart change. They expected a fighter. He gave gentleness. They expected a country club. He gave the gospel for all. Let's not miss that this Christmas season. So that way, when we start to worship Jesus and celebrate him, we're celebrating the true Jesus, not one that we've made up. Let me pray that we do that. Lord, I thank you, God, that you um, have given us your word and that it has been consistent through the years. God, that Jesus is exactly who you said he was going to be. And so, God, I pray that we would heed the warnings of Israel and not make the same mistakes. God, that we wouldn't come here week in and week out and study your word week in and week out and miss it. That we wouldn't read our own desires, our own wants, our own thoughts on the text, but rather we would come to your text humbly and see you for who you are. And in doing so, God, that we would be the best representation of you that we can be so the world that's broken and needs grace, that needs gentleness, can see that in your church. God, I pray that we would repent where we have failed in this. God, that however we have misconstrued you and usurped you for our own agenda, God, that we repent of that. God, I pray that you convict us that we might grow deeper in you and who you are. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.